0: Hey, Green Rush Nation, producer Shay Gunther here with a quick programming note about this week's episode. Instead of running a full Green Rush show, we're featuring a fantastic episode of my podcast, Marijuana Today, with two of my good friends, Heather Sullivan and Betty Aldworth, talking about their respective paths into marijuana activism and business, and later into the fields of psychedelic activism. As in Betty's case, who works as director of communications for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Otherwise known as MAPS. If you have any interest in either the worlds of cannabis or psychedelics, you should enjoy this one.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 400 of Marijuana Today. I'm this week's host, Heather Sullivan. I'm an advocate, a chronic cannabis consumer, and I work in the legal and compliance side of the industry for Cureleaf, one of the large multi-state operators in the space. However, the opinions I share on this podcast do not reflect Cureleaf's management or corporate perspective. These opinions are mine and mine alone. So first and foremost, I would like to thank you all for listening. There are so many places to get your cannabis news these days and it truly means a lot to our team that you take the time to let us share that news and our opinions with you. So I've noticed uh, in the, a few of the regular hosts and guests over the last couple of weeks have been out on the conference circuit. I myself returned to the NECAN conference this week after a couple of years away And it was amazing to be back out there with people. The energy is back. There are a lot of new and exciting technologies coming to the market. And even though I've only been at this work for about six years, I was blown away by a noticeable shift pushing cannabis even further into mainstream America's hearts and minds. So if you guys are on the fence about hitting a conference this season, I highly recommend you pull the trigger and get back out there. So we've got a very special episode this week. Um, it's one that we've been planning for a little bit and one that will absolutely go on my personal highlights reel. Today, I'm sitting down with Betty Aldworth for a one on one in-depth discussion about her experiences in the drug policy reform movement regular listeners already know that betty is my advocacy heroine and i'll try to only fangirl out a little bit here today She is the former executive director of Students for Sensible Drug Policy, one of our favorite nonprofits in the space. And she's turned her attention now to all things psychedelic as the director of communications and events at the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Betty is the OG radical incrementalist. She is a lifelong advocate for many causes. And she even has an IMDB page, as she has been featured in two documentaries about the cannabis movement.
0: Heather, I didn't even know that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Ah, well, we aim to educate here on the show. (laughs) She is a badass. She is brilliant. And I am so thrilled to call her a friend. Thank you for being here, Betty. I hope you're doing well.
0: I'm doing great. I actually had an update to my bio today as well, um, which is that I am, as of this morning, a three-time Wordle winner in just two tries. <laughs> so... <laughs> well, now explain this to the listeners. Tell us all about it. Wait, are there people out there who don't know about Wordle? It, it's a very fun word game. Um, they gained a lot of attention like over the holiday break at the end of 2021. New York Times picked it up. I'm a huge, huge fan of, of word puzzles. It's, you know, give me Scrabble, Bananagrams, yeah, you know, spelling bee or crosswords any day and I can sit for hours. Uh, so Wordle is one of them. And uh, you have to try to guess a five letter word um, in six tries. And Getting a Wordle in two is, uh, is a pretty exciting day.
1: <laughs> that, is, <laughs> that, that is amazing, Betty. It's funny. They actually use Wordle in the classroom now. So a lot of classrooms are, are, are doing Wordle as part of the um, classroom environment, which I find really fascinating and also very challenging to keep the secret from what I'm hearing. So, you know, you could really, you know, as adults, we, we have this social contract with each other that that I think most people are very comfortable with. And that is, do not share the wordle of the day. No spoilers. Right? Yeah. No spoilers. I'll tell you something. In seventh grade English class, they thrive on telling each other the wordle. You know, they try to work it into conversations now. And it, it's really fun to see uh, kids engaging, um, but also like I am just like do not tell anybody what that wordle is. You know, I am I'm very strict on that, but they're not taking it quite as seriously. I guess they need a little, a little like they don't have enough peer pressure in seventh grade. But apparently the peer pressure piece hasn't quite reached its way to the wordle. Word. Listen,
0: seventh graders are like only half of their own lifetimes away from eating their own each other's boogers so
1: like you know we gotta we gotta run the world like you're (laughs) right they're at this weird really weird place eating boogers seventh grade and then running the world right I mean like what a weird place to be um but I I love being the mom to a middle schooler. Um, It's been it's been such an interesting and fun place for me to be as a parent. Um, And I find that I am a much better parent to a middle schooler than I was uh, when he was maybe in diapers. I have come into my own as a parent as well. So that's been that's nice. Really nice. Well, well, congratulations on your achievement, Betty. Thank you. (laughs) Come on now. We'll take what we can get. Can't we? So today I thought you and I would talk a little bit about how you got into the advocacy space. You've got some wonderful stories. Um, so I guess I'll just kick it off and ask you, how did you get involved in drug policy reform itself?
0: Yeah. So as you mentioned, I've been a lifelong advocate for a number of different human rights causes. Right. Um, when I was. A- what was your first cause? The first protest or demonstration that I remember was um, heading out to the Nevada test site for the Easter demonstration. So every year on Easter, um, this was in the late 80s, early 90s, um, a bunch of folks would gather out at the Nevada test site to demonstrate against nuclear testing and nuclear armament. um, And... Uh, This was, of course, before the nuclear treaties were signed in 94, 95. And so we would hunt for Easter eggs in our backyard and then um, head out to the test site with my dad uh, to do that protest. So that's the first that I remember. And then there were, you know, in like... The, so so the two first things that I did on my own, because this is this is important. Um, so the first the two first things that I did on my own, uh, one of them was anti-apartheid action, 12, 13, 14, something like this. Um, and I would have my folks drive me into Vegas. Um, To join letter writing nights, um, which was something that we still did in person in the early 90s. Um, And then in um, uh, eighth grade, I organized my first action on my own, which was a like late cleanup day on Earth Day. um, Which the only other person to show up to was my mom. (laughs) (laughs) But
1: got to love that. I have I have to tell you, like. How wonderful to have a mom that your first efforts and you got to know your mom is always going to have your back, right?
0: Every single moment all the time, right? I'm so incredibly lucky in the mom department and the dad department too. But like when it comes to someone who's just like got your back, you know, without apology and without question, she asks a lot of tough questions, right? It's not it's not without quali- without like criticism or without open eyes, but like she has got my back when I make a decision, she's there every time. And so it, that's a lot of what gives me has given me throughout my lifetime, even now, you know, the strength to like deal with some of the rough moments.
1: Well, and I would have to throw out there a huge thank you to your parents who I don't know or who I have never met because they bred and raised a woman that, as we know, has become a a mentor to me. Um, And that means they instilled some things in you uh, from the advocacy side, but also just as a human being and a fellow female. Um, So thank you. Mr. and Mrs. Aldworth for raising Betty so wonderfully and bringing a woman into this world that has become such a true heroine to me. I appreciate the efforts that you put in as parents.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'll be sure to pass it along.
1: <laughs> Please do. Please do. So I was, a, so,
0: you know, I was as a kid and a, uh, an advocate and an activist, my sister
1: of course picked up a lot of that too. Right. And, Um, I didn't know you have a sister. I did not know this. Oh, wow. So sisterhood is like the hardest and the best relationship a woman could ever have out there. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is, uh,
0: all of the things wrapped up in the most intensity, right? right?
1: The person who's got your back for, for your entire life. But also the person that I mean, at least for me, my sister is the person that will hold me to the highest standards and throw me under the bus faster than anybody else. Well, still to this day, <laughs> we still argue over. So my sister and I still to this day, you know, uh, our parents will give us a gift and one of us will get the green one and one of us will get the blue one. And to this day, we still argue over. Uh, there was a <laughs> side note, a funny side note. A friend of ours had posted online, they had some, uh, they were doing some renovations in their house and they had some older but still functional windows. And I'm building out uh, a, I'm building out my garage into my own office and like a little studio. I'm going to call it the Cougar's Den. <laughs> nice. And uh so I needed some windows for that. So I, so I saw it online. I, I raced over with a friend to go pick out some windows. I pull in the driveway, and there's my sister and her husband. So I immediately get out of the car and um, trigger what, for a younger sister, must be the worst statement in the world. I'm the oldest. I get to pick first. And as she's my younger sister and she just kind of has to say, oh, is this really going to be worth the fight or not? (laughs) And the good news is, is that we didn't want the same windows. Uh, The great news is, is that we were able to get rid of all the windows that they had (laughs) between the two of us. But it was really hysterical to drive up and kind of be like, oh, no. You know, somebody else is there, and then it's my very own sister, uh, someone who I've been pushing around for my entire life. So <laughs> that was that was a win, as far as I was concerned. No, I'm sorry, go back to it. You have a sister no, who's also been an advocate. So um, Katie,
0: who's younger than me, um, by a, about a year and a half, um, worked with a needle exchange When she was like volunteered with the needle exchange and then moved to D.C. to um, to run outreach for a sex worker support organization in after she graduated uh, from Berkeley in 99 ish, I think. And um, and so that's when I was first introduced to the idea of drug policy reform. Was through, and harm reduction was through my sister, who I admire tremendously. Also, if you're in DC um, and you are into ceramics or woodworking, check out Material Things. Katie's a ceramicist, her partner is a woodworker, and they do classes uh, and also sell their beautiful work in uh, Hyattsville, just over uh, the DC city line. So go check out Material Things, it's amazing. Great Betty style. I'm
1: taking, I'm taking Jack to DC in April. Oh, great! So I will. I we. I've been looking. I'm letting him plan the trip. So I'm. Last vacation we had, I planned everything. He literally turned to me at one point and said, "You know, this is my vacation too." So (laughs) this time around, he's getting to choose which museums we go to, which Smithsonian's we check out. We've been working together a little bit on developing our itinerary. I think a visit to material things is going to be the one thing that I... That I say, this is a must-do for mom. So thank you yes. for sharing that.
0: Also, you should go eat at Green Almond Pantry, which is where she was last a chef. Not only is she a brilliant ceramicist, she's also an extraordinary chef. Um, but uh, and and uh, the, the last place that she chefed before she, uh, you know, moved full-time in ceramics was a spot called Green Almond Pantry, owned by our friend Shagla. And it's so amazing. Turkish food, um, Mediterranean food, like you wouldn't believe. So a couple of plugs for some of my favorite things in D.C.
1: Anyhow. I love it. Thank you so um, much. OK, back to so the but, important stuff, <laughs> drug policy reform. <laughs> yeah. So,
0: I, you know, I spent my uh, the early part of my career doing fairly traditional uh, nonprofit work, education. Um, uh, working in an aid service organization, doing home-delivered meals for people living with life-threatening illnesses, running these very large volunteer programs. And all of a sudden, this cannabis thing is kicking up in Colorado. And my next-door neighbor was starting up a lab, the second cannabis lab in the country, the first owned by... Harborside, Steve D'Angelo. So we were the first independent lab in the country. And the, um, and he just needed some help with like demolition and plumbing and runs to Home Depot. And I go and I, over there day one, 2009, um, I said, so what is this lab? And he started explaining it to me. And at the end of the day, I'm like VP of business development and community outreach or something, because it was so interesting and so up my alley, um, and something really quite different than anything that I had done before. So I, I cut short my sabbatical as between jobs and went to do this thing. And at that point, I just started learning so much more about the day-to-day of, you know, the challenges for people who were trying to treat their very serious illnesses with cannabis and how difficult it was, you know, 13 years ago to do that. We forget. We forget how hard it was to find information, how hard it was to find quality product. I mean, we would go, you would look online for, you know, cannabis strains for migraines. And the first thing you would see at the top of some internet forum, which was the only place you could find information, was an ad for legal buds. And folks who have been around for a while will remember this one. It's this like, Naked woman laid out on a flower, uh, like on a bed of buds with buds covering her bikini parts, you know? <laughs> and, it's like, and so that's what you were coming into trying to learn anything. And I got really excited about that. And, you know, through that sort of return to my grassroots advocacy work um, when I started doing <clears throat> community organizing for medical cannabis patients. And then um, eventually, for Amendment sixty four, where I was field director and, and spokesperson for the first initiative in the country, so that's how I found myself sort of back in direct advocacy. Of course, I'd been volunteering, you know, for a bunch of different things, but like making advocacy my work um, really began for me in in two thousand nine.
1: And let's not get it twisted, Betty. Some of the work that you did on Amendment 64, a lot of the work that you did on Amendment 64, is our strategies and structures that are still in effect today when we're advocating across the country. Um, so thank you for that hard well, for putting in that hard work at the time and like and like testing. Right. Like yeah. you're testing all these. At, um, at Amendment 64, there was no I mean, right now, like you go in and you say, like, it's all very like data and very driven by like, OK, we know that this is the political spectrum in in this location. And so we know that we're going to get this much. I'm guessing that you had very little of that at in, in 2009 in terms of what you could actually you had to base your decisions on. What you think, how you think people are going to respond instead of basing those decisions on what now has become a very, you know, almost like a, I don't want to say cookie cutter because every campaign's different, but we have a lot more tools now, I think, than what you had in 2009.
0: Yeah, and, and like credit where credit's due, you know, we did have a lot of, listen, we had Steve Fox, right? And we had Mason DeVert working on that campaign and we had just enough polling to be able to figure out like here are the people we need to be targeting here's the population here's who here's who we can move with the right messaging and here's the right messaging and you know when it came to the safer campaigns a lot of that was just Steve Fox's brilliance in 2006, 2010, before I even came, before I even had any awareness of, of any of this and like the team that he and Mason became when they were working together, you know, and, and what they were able to do. And I went and learned from them and, and really developed my instincts for um, for that. Messaging work that that poly, that like public perception change work with the two of them, and I will never forget ever you know election night in 2012, standing at Castleman's in Denver, um, where you know the rest of us are running around like having conversations and you know trying to get a sense of what's going on, and there's Steve in the corner over his county level returns data just looking at the counties that we were winning and he knew half an hour before anybody else that we had won because he was just able to to suss that from the data that was coming in and it was such an incredible time and yeah I think listen we did we laid a lot of the foundations that year you know and the information that came back out of Colorado, Oregon and Washington for that campaign I think have led to much stronger uh, campaign foundations ever since then and I'm really, really proud of that work that we did there.
1: Well, it has in a lot of ways. It It's created a strong foundation and the safer campaigns, I mean, that's probably one of, I mean, that I can think of. It's one of the most successful set of Citizens Initiative that, you know, it's the, you know, it's the local with the, with the national overlay of it, like this has worked. Our campaign in Maine was a safer campaign. So uh, thankfully, there were these really amazing experts that have done this in other places before to teach people like me, because I never could have come up with that. So, you know, I am not an idea man or an idea woman. I am an <laughs> executioner. That is where I function. So um, having that, having that come, you know, come down by the time in 2016 when I was doing it. I mean, the the level of growth that, that went into like those safer campaigns over that period of time is astounding. Successes and losses. Like it's not like this was just an only a successful success. Program And then, you know, there were I wouldn't say competing necessarily, but competing campaigns as well that we well, can there are all competing learn from theories, right? Yes. Yeah. And that's there are
0: like one of the things that I'm grateful for now is that I was working with the team that ran a more uh, aggressive campaign in terms of the political structures or the, that we were. Setting up right, Washington ran, ran a much more conservative campaign that really was um, way more of a sure thing because they were not going for a constitutional amendment. There were aspects of that law that were much more conservative than the law in Colorado, and and you know in Colorado we were, I think, much more bold. And still managed to win without any institutional support, right? And so we were able to sort of, you know, when you start looking at some of the nuances and the details, you know, close up of these different theories that are driving the campaigns, I think that that's when you can really take the learning from it. And you're right, not all successful by any means. The, you know, just the safer messaging in and of itself, while incredibly effective considering – how similar cannabis is in its use patterns, and the you know, and how many more people use cannabis than other you know prohibited drugs. Like, very, very smart to go about it that way to to um, relate cannabis to alcohol, right, and help people understand that ca- people use cannabis socially in the same kind of way, which is more true for cannabis than than other prohibited drugs and the <clears throat> but it also sets up a you know a, an easy argument for people who want to be cannabis exceptionalists uh, when it comes to alcohol, when it comes to prescription su- substances, when it comes to um, you know stigmatized drugs like opioids and methamphetamine or, or when it comes to psychedelics and so much of that exceptionalism has been adopted by the psychedelics community and users that it's still something that we're fighting. So, you know, the, the learning from successes is also sometimes learning from the challenges of those successes, I think.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm curious now, um, because you've been in this reform movement for quite some time now, what do you think is the most, I don't want to say most important, because I think as a fellow radical incrementalist i think that every small even small changes do build up but what do you think is kind of the most important work that we're doing or we should be doing right now when it comes to drug policy reform are you thinking you know is it more about industrial prison complex is it more about awareness of addiction where do you think that where do you think that we can make the biggest shift in public perceptions?
0: Um, that's such a good question, Heather. I think that the... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take your question a little bit differently than it was asked. No matter what work we're doing... I think that the most important underlying theory is – or the most important underlying action is to get people questioning what they think they know about drugs and the people who use them. Because at the end of the day, we will have won when – we have changed everything people think about drugs and the people who use them, right? We don't really understand what drugs are. We don't really understand, like as a society, right? We don't understand why some drugs are acceptable and why some drugs aren't. We don't understand why people use drugs particularly well. And all of that information is available, but if we're not actively questioning the things that we think we know, and, and that goes for me too, right? I'm I'm constantly questioning the things that I think I know. Um, then we are going to find ourselves trapped into these like structures, these, these mental structures that other people build for us around drugs and the people who use them. So the thing that I, I'm constantly harping on is like, I am the most important drug for me. <laughs> the, the one that I like rely on more than anything, caffeine.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. My
0: my favorite drug, yep. probably caffeine. I don't love it, <laughs> <but> it's the <laughs> only way I get through my day. And like, why is caffeine such a wildly, ex- you know, acceptable drug that we've moved out of the concept of drug? And so if we start there... If we start with what are drugs and why do we use them, then I think that we can create mental flexibility and intellectual flexibility so that people can start really thinking about the political structures that cause us to imprison people, to allow people to die of overdose, to, you know, these are choices that we make and we can make different choices. We can stand up. Overdose prevention sites, i.e., safe injection facilities, and we do so safely, and that will, you know, create an incredible boon for safety. Um, we could do go a step further and follow the very successful models in Canada and some places in Europe, where people are actually receiving prescription. People who um, are do have opioid use disorder are receiving prescriptions and can remove the chaos of the of the of the buy out of their lives and then the chaos of the criminal influence out of their lives and then they can stabilize and live very productive lives whether or not they you they continue to use we can start to think about those sorts of things in a very fundamentally different way and and that i think is the work that underlies so much of, you know, all of these other messages for me anyway, um, is whether I'm working on cannabis or stigmatized drugs or psychedelics, that's the thing that I'm trying to do.
1: Well, I thank you for trying to do that. Um, <laughs> Thanks for I loved- giving me a place to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> anytime, anytime. Um, and I think you're right. On top of it, you know, and and I think you're absolutely right. Um, One of the biggest challenges that I have when I'm trying to advocate is that, you know, is that stigma. It's the stigma of, you know, so now, you know, and I find it especially challenging now that we're seeing this shift when it comes to cannabis. So why is it, and I'm thrilled I mean, I work very hard for this, right? But also, like, so why is it, like, okay, we can shift our perceptions pretty easily, uh, for the most part, uh, on cannabis, or, or we've seen it happen. We have we saw it happen with, you know, I, I often use the gay marriage, um, how we just sh- saw a, a real a tipping point in America, and now gay marriage, with few exceptions, Florida, um, it is not a topic of conversation like I remember it being, eight, 10 years ago, um, we've kind of, you know, we, we did the right thing and we, and we came to a general consensus that let's let people love who they want to love. And then now there's not as much focus on it. And I think that's right. Why is it that we can't help, you know, and then with cannabis, very similar. you know when when I'm sitting in a conference and and they're talking about consumer segmentation of cannabis consumers, and it's the and it's the busy mom and the and the older, you know, the older, uh, hardworking, ret- now retired, parent and and those are the people that frankly when I first started those were some of the people that we had a hard time getting over to our to understanding cannabis why is it why does it continue to be so difficult when we're talking about other drugs that have been deemed illicit um, and, and not giving people who have a need for those types of substances or have found a way to utilize those substances to reach them where they're at right now. And that is oftentimes maybe not in a very good place. Like, why aren't we more open-minded to that as well? Um, it's very frustrating to me when I hear like, oh, and, and I mean, I'm in a state that, that lags a little bit when it comes to uh, social acceptance of certain things. So why is it that I'm still facing with the, that person is a drug addict, and therefore they don't deserve X? I mean, and that X could be something that we all take very uh, take very much for granted—a job and a place to live. Uh, why don't that? You know, why do people feel that people who have fallen into substance use or substance abuse—I guess—is probably you know, in my world, no, it's, so, it's the drug addict. That's the terminology that yes. I always hear. How can I fight that? So listen.
0: You know, if we're going to talk about gay marriage as an analogy, I think that it's really important to deconstruct that in people's minds. Right? Thank you. So, yep. um, Stonewall, which was the first real um, significant moment of protest, in um, was what sixty eight, sixty nine, right? And that wasn't a that wasn't for marriage. that was for that, the right for Just, gay men together in a bar in New York, right and without being harassed by the police. And so between Stonewall and game, and the Supreme Court's decision on gay marriage was what 35, 40 years. Mm-hmm. And we are still fighting very much fighting for LGBTQI rights and particularly for trans people. Who are still, you know, part of that like are still the most stigmatized amongst um, that group of, of this group of, of humans, right? And mm-hmm. yes. and so the so there's still like we think about tipping points and big moments, and those become embedded in our memory as you know these huge things that happened, gay marriage was so successful because of a very, very targeted political and advocacy and legal campaign to bring the right case to the Supreme Court, right? And to make change at the state level, to get that right case set up for the Supreme Court to make the constitutional argument. And so it's, it is that kind of very targeted Deliberate multi year strategy combined with, a, a, you know, like a multi pronged strategy, too. That's also combined with a, a social public perception change strategy where people become humanized. And that's such a huge part of this work, right? And that means that when somebody's at work making a joke about, you know, about gay people that is derisive like somebody's got to be there to stand up and say that's not okay right and so what in this thing that and that happened so much more like the the using anti-gay or homophobic or anti-trans language in the workplace or in social settings became less and less and less and less acceptable alongside these movements to change the laws. And then eventually, like there did seem to be there was a shift into understanding like, ah, oh, oh, we're actually all humans and none of us, <laughs> you know, we don't need to hate people for who they love. and all of these things come along. And so we don't have to hate people for what they use either. And so those shifts in language when you're talking about things like, you know, drug abuse or addicts, very similar. Right. Like that language is highly stigmatizing. Right. And like I am a person who abuses caffeine.
1: One hundred percent. I am a person who right. abuses caffeine and cannabis. Yeah. <laughs> Not and to my so- detriment. But I mean, it, those are my go to.
0: Well, you are a person who uses caffeine and cannabis. I'm a person who abuses caffeine because I caffeine is in charge. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like, there's a there's a difference there and I accept it I understand the risks, you know, but also the yep. um the that terminology in and of itself is really not helpful, and it's not even acceptable within the mental health um, and uh, substance use uh, community any longer, right? Like, the, we think of all drug use as misuse or abuse, but the, that is a very, very flawed understanding of drug use. And so, like, what it really comes down to is who's in charge of that relationship, do you have a relationship with this substance that you are happy with, that is serving you? And if so, then you're just using it. You're you're using okay. a tool mm-hmm. that serves yep. you, right? Yeah. And so let's change the framework there, um, and think about you know rather than and like just banish the word, the phrase drug abuse from our language when you're not in charge then that might be dependence that might be addiction but the clinically appropriate and non-stigmatizing term is substance use disorder right and that is when you are it is disordered when when it's something that you engage in regularly. So just building a basic understanding of how we how we use drugs and why we use drugs and being able to counter when you hear something like drug abuse with substance use disorder, you know, or is it really abuse or is it just use? Like, create those questions. And I – listen, I work in drug policy reform, right? And I still have to, you know, like – Probably at least once every couple of weeks, like remind someone, a colleague, you know, um, or an ally or, you know, someone who I'm in conversation with, uh, uh, not, not drug, not drug abuse, not addiction, you know, like substance use or substance use disorder. It's,
1: you know. So I... Thank you. I appreciate that. Like, that's what I love about chatting with you, Betty, is that every time we talk, I get a deeper understanding of an issue that I'm trying to be an ally for. Um, And that's and that goes across. I mean, you and I've talked about a number of different subjects. Um, Thank you for helping me in particular, but folks in general use the right terminology. It does matter um and my, i will be making my best please call me out if when if you hear me you know that's another thing i'm big on like feedback so i appreciate you call you calling me out and saying I calling you in my Heather, goal, calling you in calling me it's in a, oh my god i love you so much <laughs> Thank you so much for calling me in. We're doing it live. I'm calling you in. (laughs) I have made a commitment to use the term substance use disorder in place of misuse or addict or addiction in the future. So thank you. I appreciate that. I'm curious about something you mentioned a little bit earlier. You talked about um, how you're constantly learning and you're changing the way that you think about things. Can you think of something that you felt strongly about that then you were able or chose to change your perceptive on um, and share with us kind of a little bit about how that happened? Because I get like a million of them. (laughs) I am extremely opinionated uh, and also sometimes (laughs) extremely uninformed. (laughs)
0: yeah, I mean, I think that um I think that the most important thing that I have learned as an adult and an advocate is actually around how to change people's mind, right? Um, because I used to believe that telling people facts, Right. Delivering facts. Yes. Yep. (laughs) Yes. In a didactic fashion was a thing that would change people's minds. Right. And it doesn't. It doesn't. And I saw that and went to go learn how to actually change people's minds in a different kind of way, which is mostly through questioning. Right. It's not through judgment, it's not through delivery of facts, it's not through listen, I love nothing more than a well-crafted argument. <laughs> <You
1: know? laughs> like, just, yes.
0: When you can be incisive and like deliver just the right things to use I'm right and you're wrong and here's why and I'm gonna give you this and like, you know, it's 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 a game for me and mm-hmm. I get lots of mm-hmm. dopamine out of it. <laughs>
1: Were you on the debate team as a teenager? (laughs) Of course I was. (laughs) Of course. Uh, One of the saddest things to me is that my school didn't have a debate team at that time. So I never got that opportunity, Um, which in effect, I mean, if you think about it now, like that method of debate does not change people. what you just said, right? That does not change people's minds. However, I wish that I had had that opportunity because i would have loved to like you said it's a dopamine hit right yeah Um, Yeah, that's great that is hysterical i love that so
0: but like it 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 doesn't work you know there are there are places where that argument is necessary right and there Mm -hmm. are places where Mm -hmm. that that form of like very specifically debate is the thing that you want to do but it is certainly not how you want to go about trying to actually change a person's mind, right? The way that you actually go about changing a person's mind is through Socratic dialogue, through building empathy, through creating questions in their own mind about their beliefs by, like, through that Socratic dialogue method. And so, you know, I had to learn that. And then I had to learn, okay, how do you do that with an audience of thousands or millions over time? Because this is also an over, this is also a, you know, a a long-term strategy because we're not just trying to get this one thing accomplished. What we're actually trying to do is really shift culture. And so, you know, that experience of realizing that, my my instincts were not in fact my instincts about how to change someone's mind were not in fact how you go about doing that for most people and then learning how to um how to do so was I think one of those places
1: for me that was really important how about you so 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 I, you know, I'll be perfectly honest. I think that given my upbringing, given um, where I grew up, I was definitely very much influenced by that. Um, You know, here's a great example of it. I truly did not understand when I was in my um, early 20s, I would say. I did not truly understand or believe that people would be in jail for things that they didn't actually do. Like I did not, I, I was fed that, you know, that the, that the police and the government, if they, if they have charged someone with something, you know, and if that person, yeah, if that person has gone through the court system, something that I have historically held in pretty high esteem, someone has gone through the court system, then, then it was, impossible for me to imagine that that court could make wrong decisions and I know this sounds ridiculous but honestly the thing that changed my or the thing that opened my eyes to that I'm so embarrassed by this to be honest the thing that opened my eyes to that was the O.J. Simpson case and when O.J. Simpson was found not guilty for something that as a neophyte who knows very little about, you know, how you build up a court case and how you go about doing that. I had never, you know, nothing had played out in front of me that way before um, where we were seeing what was going on in the day to day in the courtroom. I had not paid attention to that any place else. That is the first moment that I said, Oh, wait a second here. Something's something is wrong. I didn't know what was wrong. I didn't know that there was something that I could could do about it um, or that there were, uh, you know, I mean, I obviously understood that there were other people out there in the world that already saw this. And that's when I started kind of like looking more into those pieces of criminal justice that I understood as being just truths and how I had to really deconstruct my truths, and I continue to this day to find myself in that same situation. It's why I'm so, it's why I read a lot in this area. It's why I listen to a lot of people that I respect a lot in this area because I'm very well aware of the prejudices that I've really come to the table with when it comes to the injustices that we're seeing, uh, particularly when it comes to criminal justice system. So I would say that's probably one of my bigger ones
0: it's so interesting because it also, like, once you start down that path, you've probably also started to think about, like, the fact that what is against the law and what the punishments are for it, these are all choices that are are made, you know, for a whole variety of different reasons that end up having really significant impacts on people's lives day to day. Right. And, and it starts to open up-
1: Don't actually do what they're intended to do. I think that was the other After- piece is that I just assumed that a person goes to jail and that, that type of handling of, I didn't, you know, again, I didn't understand that. I didn't understand the breadth of how much mental health has an impact on I didn't understand how social class had such an impact on on where you where you find yourself in very important decision making places in your life that caused people to make to choose one path versus another that was all like brand new to me and as a as a young person who was pretty much a rule follower for the most part you know I've dabbled in my things, but in general, I was pretty much a rule follower. Um, and frankly, didn't see. You know, I didn't have. I didn't. I was. I have wonderful parents um, who I appreciate a great deal, but they weren't people who stood up for any. They weren't people who felt that they could make a difference if there, there was something out who took there that you they did. Protests did- when you were five? No, no. And I mean, frankly, I would say that they were people that would have been horrified. If I had said I, I would like to go to a protest, or please drop me off at the at the local protest, I think that would be something that would, for them, unfortunately, would have been like very concerning for them. You know, concerned for my safety, concerned about about what I was, who I was being influenced by, and what I was being involved with. Um, so yeah, I think that you know, I didn't, I didn't have that. I, I wasn't, I wasn't taught the ability to think about things in the way that you just that it seems to be very natural or, you know, ingrained for you. Um, So a lot of it I've had to I've had to do on my own, which is actually very valuable for a person like me, because also I do tend to need to learn things for myself in order for me to put them into action in the future. So by going through this journey, by learning from you, that has has helped and, and and hundreds of other activists out there that are doing work that they find, that they think is important. Um, it's, it's allowed me to learn how to become a better advocate um, and how to really like hone in on the things that I truly think are important. Not because they maybe impact me, but because they're, I think of as being true injustices that we need to change immediately.
0: Well, so there's a the flip side, right? There's you you, the, to being raised as a person who questions everything versus being raised to a person as a person who, you know, follows those rules, which is not. So the. Um, we were talking before we started recording about how you want to see a lot of the messaging that's going out before it's going out, because you feel like you have a unique view on how is this going to be received by the, the intended audience. And I, and being a person who has transitioned from an intended audience to someone who understands those complexities that are inherent in how we think about cannabis, how we think about people who use drugs, how we think about these systems, you have set, you have a, a view that I can only imagine. Like the last time that I ha- held bias around cannabis users was when I was 14 and like fully bought into the dare thing and then realized, oh shit, my... Dad smokes a lot of pot, <laughs>
1: right? And like <laughs> how does this fit in? <laughs> oh, <can't> wait.
0: <laughs> this guy's pretty alright, but they're saying he's bad and, you know, and like had to do all of that those mental gymnastics around it, which that's a different show. But the um but like that was 30 years ago. Right. And I just it was so distant. And so I have to use my, you know, like I have to really be intentional about putting myself in that place. Whereas I think for you, it's your instinct. You know it a little bit better. And like, how are people going to respond to ideas that they find antithetical to their, you know, existing constructions? That takes a lot of work for me. (laughs) so.
1: I had, and I've, I've told this story before, but when I first jumped into cannabis, uh, reform in particular, I honed my arguments on my family, my dad, my, not so much my mom, um, my extended family, you know, I've got, I've got, you know, to this day, I've got uncles and a father very proud of me and, and what I've done and how happy and very proud of how I've built a life that I am very proud of. Um, but I mean, when your dear old dad still says to you over the weekend, I don't believe there should be any pot stores in my town, you know, after all this time. <laughs> and you know, and, and at this point, it is something that I also find that that when it comes to um, staunch prohibitionist mindset, one thing that I found is that it, it, unfortunately for some people out there, It truly does have to. Something has to happen to them or someone they are close to, and then they become. Then they completely can shift that mindset and see things from a different perspective. But it, it. I liken it to the "not in my backyard" mentality of until it actually impacts you, until you have a family member who is suffering from a disease that is then ultimately they are somehow helped by their cannabis use that's when it starts to switch for some people and i've kind of just chalked up my dad as one of those people i don't want anything to happen to him where he has to learn the consequences of his ways i guess but also i'm prepared to be there for him if he finds himself in that situation um And then finally he'll eat the pot brownies that I make, right?
0: And then he'll (laughs) he'll realize how important it is to have a cannabis store that you can access without having to drive for many hours in order to
1: get your medicine and all of those things, right? And available at a fair price and a product that you can trust and rely on. Just like you feel as if you can trust and rely on the Tylenol that you take every day, which don't get me started on that discussion because he and I go rounds on that one. (laughs) I mean, he knows how bad Tylenol is for you, right? (laughs) Look, I mean, we're talking about a gentleman, love him to death, but he has his opinions and he feels very confident that he's allowed to have those opinions. And it's kind of a little bit, Betty, about what you said earlier, giving him facts does, is not necessarily that, that has not worked for me to change his mind. Um, so the questioning. Um, I wonder if there's there's a there's a little bit more to this, you know, now I feel like I'm in the middle of a therapy session. There's more that I can <laughs> unpack on this. We're not going to go there today. You notice how I'm cutting this one off. Dad it's and daughter relationships are so challenging. Let's just leave it at Listen, that. I'm not a therapist, Heather. I just. Stand next to them on TV. <laughs> hey, oh my God, I love that. I love that. So I want to switch over. I want to talk a little bit about being a female in this space and some of the things that you've gone through. Now, to start that off, you did something at SSDP that I'll be perfectly honest with you. It's very hard to me imagine for me to imagine a man doing this. And what you did is you actually basically determined that your job was no longer necessary, or that, that your role, you, your, the role that you were playing, you found a way to shift the structure at SSDP to eliminate your own job. So I am quite curious how did you and the team come to that decision? Um, and then how did you kind of plan for that departure in a way that ensures that the organization itself stays strong?
0: So let me just I, I correct it a little bit. I think that the um, – <clears throat> I can certainly see a future where SSDP um, wouldn't – would adapt the bylaws and no longer have an executive director. That's a different type of organization, and that goes way down the weeds of nonprofit governance. But mm-hmm. – Um. It was that I had um, – so I think that there are very, very few circumstances under, and very, very few leaders um, of organizations where it makes sense for someone to be the executive director of a nonprofit for more than seven years. And that okay. is actually the foundation of – my decision to leave SSDP or to plan for my departure from SSDP after seven years, which is something that I began expressing to the board after year two when I surprised myself by wanting to stay on beyond year three. So SSDP, as a college-based organization, had a long history of short-term executive directors, which is, I think, you know, fitting or certainly was at the time. Um, but when I was there needed a bit more long-term stability and, um, but I set that limit of seven years because it was something that I believed going in and felt like I needed to stay integrated with as I moved through my time there. And the, You know, when an executive director is with an organization for more than seven years or even more than four or five years, really, but it starts to get more troublesome at seven, I think. What Um, happens? So people begin donors like the stakeholders in the organization, donors, employees, um, the people who you're serving, people in the community begin to associate organ like you the organization becomes an extension of the leader, right And that can happen in a lot of different ways and for the long-term stability of an organization, um, and again, there are exceptions. I, like I'm working at a place where we've had we, we were founded 36 years ago by our current executive director. And like,
1: I, <laughs> so an exceptional would,
0: executive
1: director is what yep. we're talking yeah. about. Yeah, there.
0: and <laughs> the organization is very much attached to, like Rick as a person, right? Like mm-hmm. that's yep. it is. Um, and our challenge right now is, you know, part of our challenge right now is to build resilience, build a, build the parts of the organization that are independent from Rick and make sure that all of our stakeholders are able to function when it's time for Rick to move on, right? And when, Or when it's time for Rick to retire. Like, he's 68 or 70, and, like, that's going to be a reality someday, and the organization mm-hmm. can't fall apart when that happens. So right. a lot of us are doing a lot of work around continuing the mission um however like net we have definitely benefited from from his you know being with us for as long as he has so anyway seven years like you start to um the organization unless really carefully managed or unless the the leader is particularly exceptional will begin to suffer from that um that leadership longevity rather than benefit from it right and so i knew that i also you know i in january of 2020 which is when i you know formally um gave my resignation at ss or i don't know sometime around then um formally started talking with the board about it at least um we were just at the beginning of COVID, and um, I was a COVID hipster, so I uh, <laughs> knew all the deep cuts and heard about it, <laughs> you know, heard about it early, and was following you along. A COVID just, hipster. You know, in the underground indie, indie COVID <laughs> tracks and whatnot. Um, so January 2020, I'm like, oh God, this is not good. And then we started seeing the economic impacts. I knew that it was, you know, I knew that I was leaving SSDP by December of 2020. That was happening, COVID Mm -hmm. or not. And so how do we build a a transition plan that's going to allow the organization to survive? And listen, a lot of us were making fear-based decisions in March of 2020, right? Absolutely. Yes. And, And- my decision making was really like it was more worst case scenario planning that I usually allow for in my world. Like, yeah, have the worst case scenario plan there, but don't act on it. Just leave it leave it in your back pocket because it's probably not going to be worst case scenario. I probably took the worst case scenario plan and activated it there. But like it was it was very scary. We didn't know what yes, it was. was going to happen. And no matter what the priority needed to be, let's keep this, you know, this student organization that's been running for, you know, 20-something years active in whatever way we can so that when we restabilize post-pandemic, like, people are back in college and, you know, on campuses and, and we're you know, this movement isn't lost, the strength of it isn't lost. And does that need to look like an organization with staff and an executive director? Or does that look like an organization that's transitioning to all volunteer or whatever, let's build in the most flexible options. Um, And so it might be that it was a little bit easier for me to work my way out of a job because I knew I was leaving anyway, even though I didn't know what I was doing. But the, you know, the, um, the community organizer in me, the advocate in me just really needed to prioritize keeping that organization healthy and functional beyond the immediate emergency.
1: Well, and I think what you've described there is an example of why I hold you in such high esteem because you did put the organization first in a very scary situation. Um, and in a situation that frankly, like, you didn't know what you. I, I'm assuming, I guess, this is an assumption, that you didn't know where you, I, I think I remember when you first announced, you hadn't made your plans yet for what the next steps for Betty Aldworth were going to be. So that's your- Oh you, yeah, no, I was,
0: I was like, do I, am I gonna be my mom's um,
1: secretary? <laughs> like, I had no idea who was next. <laughs> I love that. Well, <clears throat> I mean, that, that, again, that is why I hold you in the, in the, in the esteem that I do because you make many selfless acts. Um, so thank you for doing that. Uh, so, Betty, you've been in spaces where, Women have never been properly represented represented at top levels, right? So you've seen this. Um, we, you know, it does seem to come up in the cannabis space about every March, and then it feels like it goes away until the following March. Um, I think March is Women's History Month, if I if I am correct on that. So you know, do you have any suggestions or do you have any advice for us as women to get? and keep because this is one of the things that I've been seeing is that women might be getting more opportunities to have a seat at that table but what what I also see happening is that women are also much more quickly found to be incapable or or I don't know I don't I'm not articulating this properly but it almost feels like sometimes women are being also utilized as a fall guy and, you know, and it's this, Oh yeah, she couldn't cut it. Or, you know, Oh, we gave that chance to a woman. Look what happened. You know, I hate, you know, she got pregnant and then, you know, quit. Two months later. And, oh, don't. I mean, really, you're talking to <laughs> you're talking to a woman that like begged them to let me come back to work after I was I did not want to be an at home. person. However, what I'm seeing is that, OK, we might be getting the seat at the table, but then that seat at the table is then also being taken away from us at a pace that I don't see is happening to some of the men out there. So, do you have any advice or like ideas on how we can better hold onto those spots and, of course, get more of those spots? So, um, first, I have to acknowledge uh,
0: that I had a very unusual privilege, which is that when I was 17, I went to um, live with my dad on a college campus, um, which was uh, an all male school where I was auditing classes and part of the community. And so I lived in a community of 50 at Deep Springs College um, of like some of the smartest people you've ever met in your entire life. Like this place has a lower acceptance rate than Yale and, you know, like they and has the students go on to ivies or to like do too much acid on the beach or become monks but you know like mostly ivies right (laughs) um and so this so here i am in this community of 50 where i'm one of like six or seven women um deep springs is no longer all male and as it turns out there's um it's been two or three years since they began um, the transition to going co-ed. And, um, and I think that the the there are a lot of very interesting social recha- changes reflected there.
1: Um, and not for nothing, that is not easy to be a woman on the front lines of that kind of change. Um, well, so and, I'm thinking and of wasn't the just, women that are out there doing it right now and how right. challenging it, it can be to be the the first members of those co-ed classes and what they must be dealing with uh, my hearts with you ladies stay strong um you got this you got this and betty i'm sure you know you had similar experiences although with your dad in a was he a professor there was he in the he administration was the there he was the yeah. chef oh, at the school. wow yeah look at you go look at you guys go i love it get betty in let her audit some classes. <laughs> Yeah, it was great. Learn how to milk yeah. cows and push cattle and, you know, and <laughs> calculus. Read Foucault. Well, I mean, that's that's basically what every good advocate needs for, like, in their background, right? How to, like, milk cows and, and corral cows and <laughs> yeah. um, be so, the only woman in a room full of men. <laughs> and be the only woman in
0: a room full of men before I really had a an ad- a mature and adult understanding of what that means. So, like, I'll throw some elbows in a room whether I belong there or not. And that's just something that's habitual for me. Um, But it's also something that has served, I think, the women around me well because I am, you know, I'm able to um, be in those spaces without sort of the inherent discomfort that can exist, which is not to say that it doesn't get uncomfortable. I mean, listen, it does. There have been plenty of times where it's gotten real uncomfortable, but like there's, I. so I say all of this just to acknowledge that maybe it's a little bit easier for me because of that very specific life experience. And it also has, you know, given me a sensitivity to that, Reality, Like when I am the only woman in a room that I need to figure out how to bring more people into that, bring more women into that room. And so I need to find my allies to, you know, who are the allies in the room to do that with? Who are the people who are going to be able to show up and like deal with the resistance um, against having and having – like, deal with the resistance of being one of the few. And and it takes a lot of awareness of those things, right? So, like, when you have a majority, a, a group that's represented by a single demographic majority, and you start to diversify that, the people who are of the minority representation, no matter what it is, will have a fairly accurate sense of, like, how many of the non-majority are in the room, right? So you've got a room full of 100 people and two-thirds of them are men and a third of them are women. The women are going to say, oh, about a quarter to a third of us are women, right? Men are going to say it's half women because it's so different in the perception of the change that the people who are in the majority demographic group are actually going to have a an inflated sense of their own loss of power and position. Mind blowing, right? And so this you have this tension in that change that really requires a sense of allyship and solidarity amongst the people who are moving into a space that they haven't been welcomed before. Right. And when you begin to do that work, that means that you're there are so many things to think about in terms of how you're showing up. And so when we talk about, you know, women supporting each other in the workplace, it's things as simple as, well, we all know we all know the 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 meme of like Susan says an idea. Everybody ignores her. Jim says the same idea. And a, a great idea, Jim. So being careful, right, if you're Jim or if you are Annie who's saying the idea next, well, as Susan said, like making sure that we are acknowledging the contributions that everybody's bringing into the room and acknowledging the different perspectives that those come from, it's, it's subtle things like that. And it just takes that like conscientiousness all day, every day. Which is very, very exhausting and which yes. none of us can really do. But, like, we got to do our best. We have to try. Right, because
1: you're also still in these situations trying to do the work that you're yeah. there to do. In addition to this whole nother piece, you mentioned something about, like, identifying the people that are potential allies. How How do you know that someone is maybe more an ally than, like, is there, is, is there a tell that some people, is there some kind of tell that I, you know, that I can, that I can start, is there some kind of lens that I can start thinking about when I'm in a room full of homogeneous people, the people that will be more open to bringing in new ideas, new cultures, diversity in general, you know, in particular females. Um, Mm -hmm. How do you know? Yeah,
0: I mean, I think that it's the people who are, I mean, for me, it's probably the people who are engaging in conversation with me like I'm Mm -hmm. not an alien,
1: Mm -hmm. you know? Yes. Or like I have
0: something valuable to say. And then Mm -hmm. it's a matter of like trying to understand what their values are, right? Their first, The first ally is the person who's going to treat you just like they treat everybody else. That's the tell. They treat you just like they tr- treat everybody else. And also probably need some education around, okay, here's, here's what's valuable about that, and here's why, you know, I need you to be able to do this for more people. I mean, I had to educate myself around all of that when it came to... Um, diversifying ssdp in all sorts of different ways that um you know beyond women like we it was fairly easy to change ssdp into an organization where women were represented in leadership positions um at least half the time, right? Yeah, uh, I can I can see
1: how that would be a, a a much easier hill to climb, right. given the fact that it's a student run organization, and I mean students are more flexible, I think, than some of the well, um, yeah, you know. and, and just having a woman
0: in leadership, right? You just you have to see someone in a role that you can imagine yourself in. Right. And so that was, that was like organic. That didn't really take a lot of work except to say, Hey guys, I'm here. And this is a safe space for you just in my day to day. Right. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to being that, being that ally, being that accomplice, being that advocate for bringing other people in, like, first thing you got to do is educate yourself. Right. First thing you've got to do is try to understand the emotional labor that we were just describing of that conscientiousness, right, of, like, what does it take to be in this space when you don't represent the majority? And really, like, understanding how challenging that can be and then understanding how you can show up for new people who are coming in. And so getting, you know, if what you're trying to do is create more gender diversity, really understanding what does it mean to show up here as a cis woman or a non cis man right Mm -hmm. or a trans like Mm -hmm. you know either a cis woman or a trans person um what does it really take to be in this space and so getting the cis men to try to build some empathy for that and that can be direct and that can be indirect right so my my mom is sort of brilliant at this slow change thing um her husband, you know, was raised in Kansas and not particularly comfortable with gayness mm-hmm. 20 years ago, 25 mm-hmm. years ago, right? Like, very compassionate person, very loving person, great dad, but you know, that and was part a product of his, of his environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so, my mom, when she married him, realized that one of her stepsons was gay. He was a young teenager at the time and she figured this one out pretty quickly and she's like, ah oh, shit, this is gonna be a problem. <laughs> right. So what does she do? She declares Philadelphia her absolute favorite movie and watches it three times a year with him for like uh, a decade.
1: Brilliant. Right. Brilliant. Subtle
0: normalizing helping him understand right and so like maybe meeting it's that. him
1: where he was too meeting right where, like meeting him was in that. a non-threatening way
0: yeah yeah and obviously it was more than that right she did more than that but that was like of course. part of that long term how do i help him build compassion and understanding and get more comfortable with this kind of strategy and listen we don't have a decade necessarily right so maybe right. we have to be a little more aggressive than that. But there are so many like clever ways that you can do that kind of work without necessarily forcing people into a place of discomfort. Now, that being said, faster change requires more discomfort. And so you also have to be okay with making people real fucking uncomfortable sometimes if that's what they need.
1: Well, that's – I mean, as a female – You know, I suffer from all those pieces of like not wanting to make people feel uncomfortable. Like that's, you know, a a pleaser that that is that is you've just honed in on Heather's struggle for sure that that place. And and I will say that. It gets easier if you do it. So I had a therapist uh, for quite some time, a wonderful therapist that left me with one of the mantras that I've used my entire life since then and that is feel the fear and do it anyway so it's a very simple statement it doesn't it doesn't minimize the fear um but it also just says you feel that and then you do it anyway and she was right in terms of like what's the worst thing that can happen Um, i mean
0: that's where growth comes right like that's where you that's that's where the rich stuff is is that's where you get to learn about yourself and and who you are and who you want to be and how to get from one place to another. And, like, it's real, real uncomfortable. And once you can embrace that for yourself, then you can feel a little bit better about putting others or about, like, inviting others into that space or
1: forcing them if that's what they need. <laughs> if that's what it takes. <laughs> yep. So I want to be cognizant of our time. We've been on for quite a while. I am curious, though. So I just mentioned that I, I did a conference. I know you're not quite back out there yet, I don't believe, on the conference circuit. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, I I so I gave my biggest uh, presentation this past weekend. So the largest audience on the largest stage, and I believe I've mentioned before, it was also the... Um, presentation leading up to the keynote speaker which was steve d'angelo coming and speaking so i also dealt with the factor of like i knew that like or i certainly felt that like three quarters of my audience was there just to get a good seat for steve d'angelo <laughs> so it was you know so you know i'm feeling all the fe- you know i'm feeling all the things right i'm feeling like imposter syndrome i'm doing my power posing before i get up there i over prepared uh, you know all the things and it went it went well. It went very well. I got a lot of positive feedback. Um, probably for me, a highlight so far of my career, I'm finding that I do really like speaking in those environments. Um, despite the fear that comes in, despite all that other stuff. Um, I really, um, it really gives me a lot of energy to do that. Um, I actually, Betty, you'll get a kick out of this. So, and I, and I mentioned this to Betty specifically for, for, for a reason. I had the first person ever come up to me and ask me to have a photograph taken with me. Oh, And if you remember, if you remember the first time, that's how we met. And so I just had this moment in time where I was like, Oh my God, I remember asking Betty for a photograph and how like hard that was for me and we and I was lucky enough to have a mutual friend introduce us in that environment so then to have someone come to me and ask me that same question I mean it was a you know it was like that full circle moment where like wow I look at you know it was that moment of like look at how much I've been able to do in a comfort and accomplish and grow in this space over the last six years. So for me, you know that experience is, is now my favorite conference memory. Um, do you have a favorite conference memory or a story of something that happened that doesn't have to be the same thing, like just something really funny or fun that happened or, or something that really impacted you? Do you remember the first time you spoke to a large crowd? I,
0: <sighs> let's see. The first, well, I my, so my absolute favorite public speaking memories and first public speaking memories are all sort of wrapped up in, in 2012 um, and the, the campaign in Colorado. Um, so, you know, there was like the first talk where I accidentally said, like the first press conference where I accidentally said that um how incredibly obvious it was that alcohol was safer than marijuana and then had to like in you know half a second like figure out what the what I was going to do about <laughs> that one right and like yes. how do I deal with this and you know but so some of those like cringe moments Um and then when we won being able to address the crowd that night and you know and like being able, being in that, like, in the television interview where I know that it's being broadcast across the nation and I'm the person who gets to say for the first time on TV that we won, like, things like that.
1: Um, and I, I mean, that high, if if folks who haven't been involved in <laughs> a campaign good. before, I have never, and I've done a lot of things to get high in my day, and I have never felt that same Feeling like it's almost like I kind of understand a little bit more about like politicians and like what draws them to being a politician because that high of winning something. And in particular, winning something that you've given blood, sweat and tears for lack of sleep. You know, I think that high is also coupled with like super significant amounts of caffeine. No (laughs) sleep for like the two weeks. Yes, a lot of sleep deprivation. But I have never felt that same, that same, you know, talk about chasing the dragon. I have never felt that same feeling as I felt that night on election night when the, when the word comes down from above, um, that yes, it is in fact true that something that you've worked for has, that the public, that the voters out there, you know, that the people who took their time to go out and vote agreed with what you have been putting in front of them for the last six months or so was, was just so overwhelming. So I feel you on that moment. And especially for you, you know, mine was not the first state that had done this. Mine was not, you know, mine was not necessarily making national news and I wasn't the spokesperson. So I can imagine that just, that just exponentially raises the feels that come around that experience. Yeah, absolutely. I think the
0: the thing for me that's always most compelling or that like, Brings me back into impact Mm -hmm. is when I have the experience of seeing of like a single person coming to me and saying, "You were you were up there talking about psychedelic exceptionalism," and I know that it's not okay and thank you for reminding me because i realized that i've been falling into it or the talk that i gave at an ssdp conference once and then i'm scrolling through the photos afterward and i see that one of the students has like posted her notes from my talk on her instagram you know it's, it's things like that mm-hmm. or the the People who come to me after the event and say, you know, you, that really struck me because it, my favorite speakers, it's like that one thing that they said that sticks with me and gives me direction and strength to and like fortitude when I need it. Those are the, mo- those are the things that matter the most to me. So to know that I've been able to do that
1: for like half a dozen other people, it's pretty mm-hmm. great. It is pretty great. And I do think there's a difference between that high moment of like the attention and then the the moments where you feel like what I'm doing matters. And those aren't necessarily always the, the same, right? I get exactly when I get a text message from somebody that I went to high school with and they say, I noticed that, you know, a lot about this and I'm suffering from arthritis. Are there any, you know, what should I do? Where where should I go? There's so many choices out there. What, you know, what's my first step? Those are the moments that make it possible to wake up every day and keep doing the work the highs are the highs those are those are the good time charlie's right those are the that's the night out drinking that you might regret the next day right (laughs) (laughs) Those those are the high moments but no i i agree with you on that so betty my last question for you as we wrap it up today i'm curious what you are reading watching or listening to you listening to right now that you'd recommend to me um I have okay, so so
0: two things that I've been reading. Uh, one of the things that you know that there are a lot of things that have been really crummy about the pandemic, but one of the things that I have appreciated is that I've gotten off the road and I've started reading again, a lot.
1: Are you reading um, Audible or are you are you reading? audiobooks, or are you actually holding a physical book in your hand? I'm just curious. I'm, I'm reading an ebook.
0: Yep. So, okay. yeah Yep, okay. Yep, good. Um, and neither of these have anything to do with drug policy reform. Um,
1: Even better. I
0: I just finished um, a book called Breathe, um, which is fascinating for me because it talks about how we breathe and um, the impacts that it Probably has on our physiology, and like that, when we breathe through our mouth or don't breathe properly through our nose, our the shape of our face actually changes. It's really incredible because it's a like, it's you know sociology and physiology and biology and evolutionary history all sort of wrapped up in this breathe through your nose message, um, and so fascinating. Uh, Definitely recommend it for anybody who, like me, has um, chronic respiratory issues like asthma or allergies. Uh, So check that out. And then I've just started a book called The Dawn of Everything, which takes a really fascinating new look at the history of inequality and the question of why is there inequality And it deconstructs some of the, like, Western European Renaissance ideas, the Russonian ideas of um, where inequality comes from and what inequality is from a more global perspective that is just incredible. So I've just started it. I'm not very far yet, but I'm absolutely loving it. And it's got my brain spinning around all sorts of things. So I have to recommend that Um, for anyone who really wants to have a better understanding of how we get to where we are in how we form ideas, like as a, as a culture, as a society, how did we get these ideas? Where do they come from? And how are they flawed? Fascinating, fascinating stuff.
1: I'm going to run out to my local bookstore Nice. or actually I'm going to run out to my local library and I'm going to try to see if we've got copies of both of those on the shelves in the library. If not, it will be the local bookstore that I run out to.
0: I, can, so, I it took like eighteen weeks for the ebook to come in from my library, oh. so
1: <laughs> I'll, I, well, I've got a little sway on my little public library, so let's see nice. if I can get my hands on a copy of it. <laughs> so Betty, thank you so much for being here with us today. As you know, I appreciate you um Please know that you have made a positive impact on my life, on the listeners' lives here at Marijuana Today, and all the people out there who you have truly helped. It's an honor for me to know you. It's an honor for me to get the opportunity to chat with you on the regular. And thanks for just being a good friend. Thanks,
0: Heather. Thanks for having me here for this conversation and giving me the chance to learn more about you. I really appreciate it. Because, man, it's really cool. I'm so excited that you had that experience at that conference. And like, just to watch you grow in your advocacy and your comfort with those big stages. And from that moment we met in D.C., what, seven years ago,
1: it's really been an, an honor and a pleasure. So. One of these days, we will share a main stage together. I'm putting that on my vision board.
0: Love it. Love it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right, right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for joining us here on Marijuana Today this week. I think next week we're back with a regular show for you folks. Got to thank Shay for giving me the opportunity to speak with people like Betty and others that are just leaders in this movement and in the industry. Want to give a big shout out to Overclock Remix for the cool tunes this week and remind listeners to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you find our podcast. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you have a fabulous marijuana today and a delightful marijuana tomorrow.
0: One take, Shay. One take.